This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Should the replacement for departing Deputy Chief of Police, Ken Weatherill, be replaced with a civilian instead of hiring another Deputy Chief? It's an interesting idea, and it's being floated by Police Services Board Chair Lloyd Ferguson, of course, the Ancaster City Councilor, and uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the concept and, uh, and the ramifications of it. Uh, Lloyd, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. And uh, thanks, uh, by the way, good to have you back at work, too, after a rather uh, traumatic time for you and the family. We uh, are, again, once again, want to express our sincere condolences to you and uh, and to your daughters, of course, about your loss. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Uh, We miss her terribly. And uh, is it, uh, but she did an amazing job with her three daughters. She was never alone for the last three months of her life. And, uh, you know, we got great support from the Cheravinsky Cancer Center and from, to Mark Camp Hospice and from uh, CCAC who visited her at home because she desperately wanted to come home. And uh, so I got the utmost respect for all those agencies and the VON. The VON would come in once a day with her also. But I tell you, it's a cruel disease, and I feel for anybody that has to suffer through that because you virtually, in this case, watch my spouse melt away. Exactly. And, uh, well, was, I, I know you get some great feedback from the community as well, and, and, and that well-deserved as well. We have huge feedback. Uh, I can't. I still haven't got all the cards opened up yet, and because uh, it's just been pouring in. Uh, I think the mailman's a little angry with me right now because his, his bag's a lot heavier. But uh, <laughs> uh, I very much appreciate all the condolences I've received from the community. Anyway, uh, and again, uh, it's uh, it's going to be a tough couple of weeks. I know it's a tough couple of weeks anytime you walk through the office at City Hall. I guess it is, but it's good to be back. I think it's good to get my mind off it, and. Uh, and everybody in here has been very supportive. Let's uh, let's get back into the uh, put your police services board hat on, for, if you could, Lloyd, for a couple of minutes. First of all, were you surprised that uh, that uh, Ken Weatherill decided to leave Hamilton Police Services? Yeah, I was. Uh, you know, he's uh, I, you know he's not be careful as I can on this. He was disappointed he didn't get the chief's job, and uh, his roots are in Barrie, and that's where he's going to be a deputy chief. So. Uh, he informed me, um, in fact, it was the day after my wife's funeral. He sent me an email that at 3 o'clock on a, the Friday afternoon says that he's retiring effective at 5 o'clock that day. Now, he has a bunch of leave he's using up to take him through to April but uh, on the on the payroll. But, um, yeah, I was surprised how he went about that. And uh, But, you know, you as employers, we have no um, control over when someone decides to retire. And so we wish him well and... and and, you know, they got me thinking this is a time just to step back and take a look at the operation, and, and it's easier to make changes when you have a vacancy to fill. And uh, we experienced that with the last deputy. Uh, you know, we had a, a great applicant in Dan Kinsella. Very disappointed that uh, him and, and another superintendent who just retired through the process applied. But uh, it's it's an opportunity to step back and say, is, 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 is it the right thing, in my view, to to have a sworn officer look after the administrative side. And, and for your listeners' purposes, right now we have t- two deputies, uh, Dan Casella, who is a uh, deputy of operations, and Ken Witherhell, the, the former employee, who's uh, now retired as deputy of field support. And uh, what, the, what the deputy of field support looks after is all the finance, uh, IT, and IT is becoming more and more a, a big part of policing. And uh, with all the, the cyber work, now the investigation is obviously done by the sworn officers, but the, uh, making sure we're current on technology would be uh, something that the D, uh, deputy of field support or the C, CEO or CAO 
uh, can also take on. They, they oversee all the civilian staff, for example, the dispatch, the 911 staff, and they look after all facilities. And, um, you know, as you think about it, uh, it, it may be more suited, and I have not run this yet. I haven't had an opportunity to run this by the chief, through by Eric, but uh, it might make more sense to have someone who's, who's got an MBA doing that job because they're financially seasoned, where officers uh, who come up through the rank, it's, uh, you know, their focus is on, on public safety, as it absolutely should be. And uh, sometimes they get thinking it's public safety at all costs. And uh, so we need to have someone in there to challenge that once in a while just to make sure we have that balance. So I'm going to suggest to the board, I, we have a gender review on Wednesday morning. I'll, I'll, I'll take it up with um, the, uh, the deputy and the chief at that time. And uh, the vice chair will be there also. But I've had some feedback. I, I, I do it on my own in this. I, I didn't... Um, consult with the board. I, I threw up this trial balloon on my own. and uh, But over the weekend, I had an opportunity to talk to a couple of board members, and they sound very interested and very supportive. So it'll be a full discussion um, um, two week, a week from Thursday when our next board meeting is. A couple of things about this, and, and back to uh, Ken Weatherill leaving. Um, the same thing happened uh, not too long after. I mean, Ken Linders, of course, applied for the chief's job some time ago, and didn't get it. He did stay for a while, but eventually did leave and, and well, got a job for the city, as it turned out, uh, and of course, with your bylaw enforcement uh, situations here. But is there a sense of, of inevitability that the unsuccessful candidates for these positions, uh, Lloyd, are, are probably going to move on at some point? Do you, do you take that into consideration uh, when, you, when you're looking for somebody? No. Uh, what, you know, that, that's a risk in any job, not just a, a, a chief's job or a deputy's job when you're filling a CAO position or a an operation or some kind of a VP position within a corporation. There's going to be winners and losers, and and it all depends on how the person who was unsuccessful can carry that and whether they move on. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. And you know, when we did bring Glenn in from outside, that was before I was on the board. Glenn DeCare, uh, Eric stayed, uh, but I think Ken um, Leaners always was planning to retire at that time. And uh, then moved over to be the director of licensing. Now, under Olmers, you have to take a, at least a 16-week break as a municipal employee before you can re-enter back into the employment world. And uh, uh, Ken Leaners was able to do that. And I suspect Ken Weatherhill is doing the same thing, too, although I'm not positive about that. But the, uh, he is starting with Barry, and, and that time will have passed, so it, uh, it seems to make sense. To your point about uh, when there was a, a position open there, and, and eventually, of course, Dan Kinsella was hired for that job, uh, the fact that there were so few applicants, was this, is this a factor in, in maybe deciding to go a different route here? It looked at that time anyway, Lloyd, and I think you talked about it on this program, that uh, not too many folks from the rank and file, too many people that you anticipated were going to apply for that actually did. Well, I think in the case of... Um you know, I, I can only speculate. I haven't asked anybody the question, but you know, we were disappointed. We didn't get more applications, and and we were very much encouraged to go internal, like we did with the chief, and then again with the deputy. And we respond to that, and the community and the the um, the service itself uh, applauded it. But I think in the it's a big factor in in the last advertisement for deputy, I suspect that a lot of the superintendents felt that. Um, Dan Casella was such a strong applicant, they wouldn't stand a chance. Um, but, you know, they should be putting themselves through the process for next time just so they understand what the interview process is like and the, and, and the appointment process. But uh, Dan is, is, is doing an outstanding job for us, as is Eric. And uh, uh, 
So it it, it may have. This is something you can't do a hard measurement on. Uh, but it, it it comes back again. Is is this the right way to to look at it? Now, I understand Sudbury does this. They have a deputy chief and a chief administrative officer. So he's still got the word chief in there, but he's an administrative officer and has a business training rather than a police training. And I think that would be helpful uh, the senior command to have that type of person in there. Now, you, you get into problems because uh, once you become a senior officer, you generally got 30 years experience and you've got, a, you know, six, seven weeks vacation. And it comes a little trickier trying to put the acting chief in when the chief is off. It's easier when you got two. But, uh, you know, they should be able to schedule their holidays so that they, um, um, they're not off at the same time. And in an emergency situation, you can rotate some superintendents through that role. But that'll be the discussion I have with the, with uh, Eric or the chief right now, uh, probably uh, on Wednesday morning at a gender review. We adopted the policy of two deputy chiefs, I think it was in the late 1990s, and again, it was upon retirement. Uh, I still recall the discussion with uh, some of the members of the Police Services Board at that time, including uh, the late Bernie Morelli, and they had two applicants at the end of the day for one position, and they decided to hire both of them and have two chiefs. Uh, do other cities do this, and do other cities have two chiefs, or is this unique to Hamilton? No, no, most of them do. Uh, you know, I'm looking at... Um London has two chiefs. Durham has two chief, two deputy chiefs. Ottawa has two deputy chiefs, plus a chief administrative officer. Uh, Waterloo has two deputy chiefs, and Windsor has two deputy chiefs. Uh, York. Has so this two is the trend now. Well, I, I think it's been a trend. I think it's been in place for quite some time. These, um, from my experience, when I, I go to the odd conference where they're all there, and you you can we have a chance to meet them and and discuss common issues. Um, but you know we're we're under tremendous pressure here at the city right now uh, to reduce cost, and uh, so I, you know, I think we've done a reasonable job with the police. We've got the lowest budget in 18 years again this year, but it's 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 tough to sell that to senior command because you know our pop to cop ratio is is uh, very low uh, in relationship to our, the other members of the Big 12. And, uh, you know, we have had a significant improvement in violent crimes. Technology is helping a lot more, particularly with cameras, to help solve crimes a little quicker. But um, it would be nice, I think, just to have someone in there who is a business training, business background. I mean, you wouldn't hire a person who did a school. I'd I'd be looking for someone who has a lot of experience running a business, uh, with who has an MBA, to, to fill that role and just try it. Um, and, and, and I'm getting good reaction from the public on it, too. I'm getting some, a number of emails that have come in as a result of the article by Dreschel on Friday uh, in the paper. And as I say, I've talked to two board members now, and uh, they both are very interested in this also. But um, I really need to get in front of Eric, and I, I can't do that because of my schedule until Wednesday morning. Is it a fair characterization, then, to say that those responsibilities for the, the individual, whomever that might be, uh, is more administrative than it is, uh, uh, in other words, uh, policing, I guess. Well, yeah, it's called field support. So yeah. it, it, it involves, as I said, finance, uh, information technology, all the civilian staff, including the ones on dispatch, human resources, um, and all the facilities looking after buildings. And uh, we have a few of those now, and we got a big one under construction. And uh, now we have very good managers in those areas also. We had a one great... Uh, uh, Chief Financial Officer, you know, Dan Bowman there in the facilities um, and others. But uh, 
they report to But, a, but they're a administrative. Officer. They're not officers. Correct. They're not sworn. So as you go further up that chain of command, you've got people that are not, uh, uh, first and foremost, police officers. They're more in- involved in the administrative end of things. And then at the top of the chart, you've got somebody whose background is essentially policing and, and not administrative. Correct. Seems a little incongruous, doesn't it? Well, but, but I guess they bring the policing perspective to it, and that'll be the debate. But this is this is what struck me is that uh, I'm not aware of any sworn officers that actually report to the deputy chief of field support. It's all civilians, and so why isn't there a civilian providing oversight to them? If I can repeat myself, but you know, from a macro perspective, a person that brings the business side to it uh, rather than the policing side to provide balance once they're in there you know, senior officer meetings. All right, you brought numbers up just a couple of seconds ago, Lloyd. If, the, if and this is a big if because this is all speculative now, if the board decided to go in that direction, uh, does that position pay less than a, a deputy chief would? I suspect so. I suspect, it, yeah, I suspect it would pay quite a bit less. If you benchmark off of the, you know, you can't benchmark off Mike Zagarek here because he runs the whole finance department and have $1.9 billion budget versus $150 million budget. Plus he does a lot more than finance. But if you look at some of his directors, um, you know, they would be quite a bit less than what a deputy chief is making now. So there would be a cost savings. Is that a factor as far as you're concerned, given the budget pressures, not just the police services, have, but the city has too? Absolutely. So next step is to float this at the, as gender review, obviously have a discussion about this. Uh, this is ultimately then going to be a police services board decision, not a city council decision. Correct. And uh, we'll go from there. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out over the next little while and uh, see the kind of feedback that you're getting from uh, the rest of the Police Service Board members. Lloyd, thank you so much for the time today, and uh, we'll certainly uh, follow up on this uh, after you have your meeting with the board and see what their thoughts are on this. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Bye. That's uh, Ancaster Councilor Lloyd Ferguson, of course, also chair of the Police Services Board, uh, who is suggesting that uh, don't replace uh, departing uh, Deputy Chief Ken Weatherill with a police officer, but instead somebody with a business background because it's essentially a business job. It's interesting. And, of course, obviously that would be a cost savings. Thoughts on this? B. Kelly at 900CHML.com. And, of course, you can reach us on Twitter at CHML Bill Kelly. We'll uh, follow up on this in the next 10 days or so and see just to where the city is going to go on this. Uh, the times there are changing, and maybe it's time to look at some changes uh, in that department as well. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A report by the Social Planning and Research Council says that poverty is still a major issue in the lower city of Hamilton. As a matter of fact, it's an issue all over the city. We're going to give you some of the numbers on that. One in every five children is living in poverty in this city. Sarah Mayo is with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton, and she joins us here in studio. Good to have you here. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you. Uh, These numbers are disturbing. I guess there's some encouraging stuff here, though. But uh, it's, uh, and we understand that anytime you do surveys like this, Sarah, it's always a snapshot in time of what's going on. But uh, it's a snapshot that we need to pay attention to and analyze. Yeah, well, this data is interesting. It's from Statistics Canada. And unlike a lot of the other data we get, we have on poverty, like the census, which is a snapshot, this is actually uh, a series of snapshots um, because it looks at the same people. It's using tax filer data, an- uh, anonymous. They're, they're not using people's names at all, but just using the income data to look at the same people over an eight-year period to see, okay, in those eight years, how many people 
um, uh, had in- incomes below the poverty line uh, at least one year or two years or the whole eight years. Um, and so it really gives uh, a more uh, a deeper picture than we've had about uh, people living in poverty. It's one of these situations when you start comparing some of the stats here. It's almost a good news, bad news situation in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, over that eight-year period, the highest percentage of people in the in the test group here actually were only living below that line for a short period of time, only for one year. Yeah. That's the good news. Is The bad news is the second highest group were there for all eight years. Exactly. And so that's the the, the good news is we, we need to continue to to provide support to prevent people to um, fall into poverty or when they do it's a short-lived experience and that is a um, a good thing and we want more of that that if 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 you uh, if your income does go below that line that that it's a short experience and that you have uh, the opportunities for higher income but that the second largest group is a group that has been living in poverty the full eight years of those eight years is very concerning and I think really speaks to the mayor's poverty initiative which is coming to council this week mm-hmm. which is going to which in large part is trying to address um, that group a bit more um, people who may need more supports than um, kind of just short-term um, help they may need a more personalized um, approach and, and I think that's uh, part of what the strategy is planning to do well, this also dispels some myths that uh, that you know people that are living below the poverty line are lifers, they're just living off government checks, and and this the evidence here suggests that people this is a dip. This is uh, somebody uh, who is experiencing bad times, and I mean, if you want to go back over that eight year period, let's not forget that there was a major recession economically that was right around the country that impacted an awful lot of people. And I know you found this to be the case uh, in in the time that you've working uh, for the Social Planning and Research Council too, Sarah. That Oftentimes, uh, these are people that, that say it's a job loss, it could be an injury, something like this that has a negative impact on, on their income, and all of a sudden, they find themselves in a precarious position. Absolutely. It can happen to any of us, and it does happen to many of us, um, sometimes for a shorter period, sometimes for a longer period. It is, uh, you know, our economy and our, our, our work um, uh our workplaces are much more precarious than they used to be, and so there's much more of a um, of that that uncertainty. Even people who don't actually fall below the poverty line feel it closer and closer to them um, than they have in the past. They feel much less stable, and and so it is really affecting all of us and 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 our you know fundamentally our happiness as well, but because of that insecurity. Which let's, let's break this down demographically as well, but young people. I want to talk about seniors first, though, because there's some encouraging news about the seniors here. That uh, that once you finish uh, and do go into retirement, and you're living hopefully off your retirement and CPP and whatever else that you've uh, been able to acquire and 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 just stash away, I guess for the little while. Uh, seniors, by and large, are, are seemingly doing a lot better than they used to be doing. Yeah. So we, again, there's good news, bad news. The good news is um, seniors, um, um, they're living longer. Their their partners are living longer if they're in a um, a couple relationship, and so. Um, um, but one, but and 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 we've put in specific policies to prevent senior poverty because it used to be a huge issue. They used to have the highest poverty groups among the age group, 
uh, the highest poverty rates among the age groups. But we, as a society, said, no, no, that is not acceptable. And so we put in OAS, GIS, CPP, so that people had uh, different opportunities. And um, and so now they have the lowest poverty rate um, at less than 4% um, across the city, uh, uh, 4.2% um, across the city. And um, But it, their risk of entering poverty has been increasing ever so slightly. Um, I mean, it's not slight. It's a doubling, but it's from 1% to 2% of seniors who aren't living in poverty. 1% used to um, um, then uh, have their incomes go below poverty line, and now it's 2%. So we definitely don't want that to grow, and we want it to go back down to cl- closer to zero because it's um, it's a group that is uh, more vulnerable if um, if they don't have uh, family or if they're isolated. Um, we, we certainly don't want them to fall through the cracks. Well, and, and it's interesting how this is reflective of the debate that's been going on in this country over the last little while, for instance, about something like CPP. Uh, there's been pressure on federal governments, uh, past and present, uh, to do something about uh, Canada, Canada Pension Plan and making it a more viable entity. Uh, and and you, there's some concern about uh, you know how much money is actually going out on a monthly basis, and that's a debate that's going on. But the other element to this too, which could have an impact on that, why that that well, it's doubled. Let's face it, one percent mm-hmm. to two percent is doubling. Mm-hmm. It may it may not be a large number, but it's it's a big number to the people that were affected by this. Yeah, is is the, look at a lot of people had their savings, their their potential retirement savings eroded during economic downturns, and the stuff that they thought was going to be there for them upon retirement wasn't, which means there's more reliance on government paychecks. Uh, and, and as a result, all of a sudden, it's going to have an adverse effect on people's quality of life. Absolutely. And this the, these, this data just talks about poverty. It doesn't talk about people's incomes that may be lower than they expected or, or lower than they were having, but are not yet below the poverty line. Um, this is just, you know, one picture of incomes. And there's certainly um, been... A, a, a lot of concerns about exactly the issues you're talking about, and and for youth, um, the um, the picture is sort of opposite. They have the highest risk of entering poverty. So so uh, youth who were who are not living in poverty, um, about five percent every year now uh, are living are 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 their incomes drop below that line, but it used to be 7%. So it's getting better for them, but yet they're the group that has the highest risk. And so um, it, it really speaks to the need to um, both address, um, you know, that, that we can't ignore any age group. Um, they have different needs and different um, reasons that it happens. You know, for youth, it's certainly around uh, precarious employment and um, and and low wages is a, is a huge uh, factor for and youth. And oftentimes no benefits. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, they don't have dental plans. They don't have drug plans. So in fact, uh, you know, if somebody needs a prescription or somebody needs major dental work and that stuff happens, all of a sudden it's a it's a huge, huge burden for them. Yeah, absolutely. And dental is, is one of the uh, issues that really can affect people's employment if, if it's, uh, you know, visible, um, you know, in terms of the discrimination that can happen uh, uh, because of people's teeth. Um, and so it can turn into, a, uh, you know, something that could have been prevented um, through, a, you know, a, a because there's there's an opportunity in dental is just an issue that some people are, you know have convinced me is is a uh, such an important issue that for a little bit of money as a society we could provide basic dental care for adults um, and really prevent m- many longer term problems. A couple of things. Let's talk about where this is, and because invariably uh, you conjure up this idea that well it's mostly in the downtown in the inner city and and the numbers are certainly there. 
But we shouldn't kid ourselves, though. According to this report from Stats Canada, Sarah, it's in every part of our city. Absolutely. <coughs> Absolutely. Um, and we've known that. Um, we know that in general, housing, uh, I mean, poverty is uh, any sort of map of poverty is a map of your housing prices. I mean, if you have a low income, you have to find low, um, low priced housing. And um, the old city, especially the lower city has a lot of social housing, affordable housing, but it also has has had low market rents. But that picture is changing a bit, um, and but we do see uh, that there's uh, people living in poverty, and so sometimes it's uh, in homes they own or, or or rental places across the city. Um, so after the lower city, after that, the second highest would be the mountain, and then it's Stony Creek. But then even the 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 other suburbs, um, all you know, it's all above five percent um, poverty rate, between five and ten percent for the suburbs. There's something happening in Toronto right now, and I want to know if it's it's starting to show here in Hamilton. Uh, and again, traditionally, I don't. I just mean over the years in most major cities, uh, the low income, the poverty, those that are are, are being challenged, I guess, financially uh, with cost of living, etc., tend to live in in the inner city. Uh, but there's a gentrification that's been happening in Toronto now because of housing prices that essentially has driven those people out of the downtown core now, and they're starting to, to try, and I'm not so, so sure it's always successful, but try to find housing and accommodation in, in the other areas of the city now because they can't afford to live downtown anymore. Uh, is there a concern that could be happening here in Hamilton? Definitely. I mean, there's always... Um you know, th- th- that's on the market side of housing. Affordable, sure. you know, kind of uh, regulated affordable housing isn't subject to those market pressures. And we need more of that because we need, you know, the market right now, there's a lot of speculation going on. And it's um, and it seems that, uh, you know, that we see experiences where, where uh, buildings are would rather have an empty unit and wait for a high income tenant than rent to someone um who who may not be able to afford that high rent and and that's uh, you know a, a real problem that we're not um having a better uh housing system that guarantees housing for everyone at reasonable prices um and and yes yeah, so so the sort of uh phenomenon of of pushing poverty out um into the older suburbs that happened in Toronto is uh, you know i think there's evidence that it's starting to happen here as well and and the problem there is you know services and transit are not as good in those exactly. areas and so um, it's even it makes it even harder. So now they can't access uh, the services. They can't access uh, public transit because the system. Well, we've had that debate around Hamilton the last couple of weeks, haven't we? Uh, about the, uh, the 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 lack of of effective public transit in some of those outlying areas. So you get forced out of your downtown uh, accommodation. You have to go find a place in Stony Creek or Waterdown or whatever the case might be. And all of a sudden, you can't find a job. You can't get the bus to go to jobs. Which is only exacerbating the problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, transit is a huge um, is a huge factor in quality of life uh, for low income people. As you know, uh, uh, you know, as expected. Obviously, the the higher your income, the more uh, you can afford a car. But uh, there's so many. Um, uh, jobs that are sort of more in outlying areas now that aren't uh, easily accessible by transit. And so uh, often people who can't afford a car have to have a car anyway. And so it, it further spirals um, consumer debt and um, and and all sorts of uh, ways to try to get around that, which is very difficult. 
What can the city do? I mean, you know, you've talked about some of the uh, the tools that are in, in place right now for seniors in poverty, and it's great to see that those are becoming effective. Things like Canada Pension Plan, Guaranteed Income Supplements, and things of those nature. But those are federal initiatives. Uh, the city has a role to play here, and you alluded to Mayor Eisenberger's uh, uh, task force on this right now. What are they going to be talking about? What are you looking for from them to come for a, a game plan, I guess, for, for Hamilton, a made-in-Hamilton solution to this? Yeah, so separate from the mayor's poverty, I would say that transit, you know, funding transit is hugely important. Expanding it in all forms and all technologies is all important for um, uh, to improve quality of life and access to jobs for people living in poverty. And then the mayor's strategy is more around housing and wraparound supports, and that is also enormous. So um, it's $50 million over uh, 10 years that they're proposing, and a lot of that would go to housing. And one of the outcomes would be there are social housing units right now that are vacant because they are not in good shape and cannot be um, rented. And so money would go towards things like that to actually um, open more social housing units and uh, take people off the wait list. So that would be uh, a huge benefit to the community. Um, and then also um, uh, wraparound support. So so really, so expanding, they, they do that already through the Nurse Family Partnership, but, um, and th- those supports are, are especially important because they're client-centered. It's not, you know, a sort of like, big government program that uh, that says, okay, this is the solution for everyone. It's really about having those individual conversations and individual um, supports to say, okay, what in your life would be most helpful? Is it access to childcare? Is it access to transportation? Is it um, um, support to go to school or, or whatever it may be? Um, so those, um, uh, that's... the. The, the opportunities, um, and, and the, the great thing about the mayor's strategy is because it's being funded through this hydro dividends and other ways, it's not going to increase anyone's taxes. And so we don't have to have that debate. Um, it really is uh, a, an innovative way to, f- to fund something that needs funding. What about those wait times now for people that want to access those services, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's a, a, a counselor, whether it's somebody that you have a contact with through some of these agencies? I'm told that the wait times to actually get to see somebody are, 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 are long, that uh, the people that are working in those capacities, trying to do great work, are, are overburdened right now because of the caseload that they have and the number of people they have to see. And then there's the waiting list, for instance, for something like affordable housing, which uh, last time I heard was still about six or seven years in some cases, higher in other municipalities, but it's way too long. Yeah, it's uh, there's about uh, there's over 6,000 people now, and it's been increasing in the last year quite a bit of people on the um, uh, social housing wait list. The, the number of years, it depends on your age. It's, it's about two years for an um, older person, uh, the wait list. For families, it's longer, um, about three or four years. Um, and it is, you know, that's, that's a big, um, a, a big gap is the, exactly like the nurse family partnership. There's a wait list for that because they don't have enough um, um, people to, uh, enough money to staff that program as much as it is needed. So the mayor strategy will help with those kinds of um, um of programs and and reduce some of those wait lists. It's not the important thing is that to not have these mega expectations. The the a municipality alone cannot solve poverty, and um, the type the amount of investment is going to make a difference, but is is not at the scale that would um, have the biggest you know impact ever. Um, we, we we have to kind of it's 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 well targeted towards things that will make a difference, but the amount is not enough to um, help everyone in the city. Well. And 
it's got to be the coordination, doesn't it, between the federal, the provincial, and the municipal governments here? I mean, we've talked mm-hmm. about some of the federal programs, and now there's talking about uh, a universal daycare program. I'm not even sure how that's going to roll out now or when, but uh, at least the discussion's happening. Uh, the province has kicked in with some, uh, I guess, some variations right now on, on planning and development now where they're suggesting that all new housing developments have to have a portion of it set aside for affordable housing. That's not a bad idea. I don't know exactly how that's going to roll out, and it's getting some pushback right now, too. But everybody's got to come to the table at the same time. Yeah, so th- there is the opportunity that people talk about that we have a federal, provincial, and and municipal government now that are aligned, that all agree on the need for poverty reduction. The federal government is starting a... Um, a uh, consultation on on a federal poverty reduction strategy as well and the provincial uh, province has had one for a few years now and and so and the private sector is an important um, player as well as you know certainly in terms of living wage for instance um, you know if more employers could um, make the decision that you that they realize the economic benefits for themselves in terms of higher productivity less training costs etc f- that comes from living wage that many living wage employers have have noted um, um, that and and so improve their bottom line and improve their workers' lives at the same time would be a huge bonus, a huge benefit to uh, to people across Hamilton. Yeah, but it is, it's it's interesting to me though that the discussions we've had about living wage here in the Hamilton community, it it appears to me anyway, Sarah, that the private sector is outpacing the public sector here. Uh, we've had a number of companies that have adopted this and and some social service agencies and have moved forward in this direction um, uh, much. Uh, and and that's great. That's fabulous news. The city had an opportunity to, to do that just a couple of months ago during budget deliberations and slammed the door on it. Yeah, about two weeks ago, the city decided uh, that oh, you know, they 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 weren't sure and weren't um, and and thought that oh, it was kind of some, there seemed to be. Um, some talk about how maybe it was good enough that that only that their full time employees were all living wage, and so you know why did they need to do others? And to me, what was really problematic in that discussion was that it was about there seemed to be this notion that oh well if they're part time we don't know if they what their family situation is maybe they're just supplementing an income maybe they don't really need it. And so to me, I think there's a real human rights issue there. You cannot um, change someone's wage based on their family situation. Um, work is either valuable and and all work deserves a living wage or it isn't and you can't discriminate between part-time and full-time to say um, you know there's lots of part-time workers who are part-time not because they want to be part-time they'd rather be full-time but hey if they have a part-time job they'd a living wage would be very helpful to them and so we have crossing guards for instance in our city that make between 11 and 12 dollars an hour um, the top wage is only uh, is, is in that range as well. Um, so it's it's a and and the crossing guard specifically. Oh well, they're just you know they're retired. And they're not doing it for a hobby. No, it's exactly. a job. It's a job. And why can't they have the decent? Uh, you know, a city that that values their work as much as um, someone else, and library pages, and uh, you know, these are all work that w- you know people's um, you know kind of dismisses. Oh, it's easy, but regardless, it's it's not easy. It's still a job. It's still taking time away from you, from your family, and you you deserve um, to 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 be making a living wage, which in Hamilton we've calculated to be fifteen eighty five an hour. Uh, the old colloquialism, uh, talking the talk but not walking the walk, comes to mind here. We'll have to leave it at that. We're right out of time. Sarah, thanks so much for the great work you guys have done on this and uh, interpreting this for us, and we'll stay in touch. Appreciate this. Thank you. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Today, the results of Ontario's first cap-and-trade auction are expected later on today. 
Now, the system, this cap-and-trade system instituted by the wind government, is aimed at lowering greenhouse gas emissions, and uh, it's supposed to be an effective way to do this. Well, we'll find out later today, I guess, won't we? Joining us to talk about this is Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, Ian, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Uh, I want to get into some of the instructive things about the, what this program is, but listen, we all want to be stewards of the environment. We all want to have a better earth for our, ourselves and for our kids and everything else. But uh, I, the simple question here, is this the best way to do it? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I've certainly read uh, everything I've put my hands on over the last you know, several years on the, on the two types, carbon tax versus cap and trade. And uh, I think it's fair to say that the majority of, um, of experts think that a carbon tax is a more effective and efficient tax than cap and trade it's more because it's more straightforward and there's less chance for gaming the system there's there's fewer opportunities to uh, obtain loopholes or, or obtain exemptions a carbon tax works very much like a, a GSD tax it's, it's added on to every every good and service at every stage of production and is passed on through the value chain. Uh, cap and trade requires that it, it's more artificial, and I mean by artificial, it, I mean I suppose both of them are artificial in the sense that it requires the active involvement of government to establish both of them. But with cap and trade, the government sets a maximum amount of tons of GHG that can be emitted annually, and then they sell, you buy permits, basically, to pollute, uh, permits to, to produce GHG. But where the problems occur with this system is that some industries uh, lobby and say, well, no, 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 don't, don't hit us as hard as everybody else because, you know, and everybody has a good story, right? And oh, yeah. some companies are saying, well, we're competing against American companies and they don't have a carbon tax, so don't hit us as hard or don't hit us at all. So there's more opportunities, and certainly the fiscal, Eco-Fiscal Commission noted this. This is the uh, organization established by a friend of mine who's at McGill, uh, and uh, they, they studied the two systems, and there's, there's more opportunities to essentially seek uh, exemptions from the system, and, it's not, um, and it allows more, as I said, more gaming. With a carbon tax, it's straightforward, it's transparent, everybody knows what the price is, it's added on, and that's all there is to it. So I, I think it's not the optimal system. Um, and, and then that, Bill, that this is not even addressing the larger issue that I have with both of them. And this just came out in the National Post earlier this week. Something has been well known in Ottawa that the price of carbon, the tax that has to be set on carbon to get us to change our behavior, because that's the whole point of a carbon tax. It's supposed to be. Car- it's supposed to get us to stop using fossil fuels. And the studies that have been done, and this was studies uh, by Environment Canada themselves, and that this is what the information they gave to their minister, was that the carbon tax will have to be $300 a ton, not $10 a ton. And, and this is not just known to Environment Canada. There's a very well-known professor in the West Coast, I think he's at UBC or, or Simon Fraser, one of the two. He put out a study about a year ago saying, with remarkably similar numbers, saying you won't get changing and changes in behavior until the tax becomes really, really significant. And it would be so harsh, it would be so draconian, it would essentially shut down the economy. And and that's the dilemma that people are in. If you put it low so it doesn't disrupt the economy, 
then it's not going to cause us to change our behavior. And if you set it really high to the point where we will stop buying natural gas to heat our homes and stop buying gasoline to put in our cars, then it will be at such a high price that it will literally wreck the economy. And this is the dilemma that environmentalists face and that policymakers face. And so I argue, cap and trade or carbon tax, it's, it's, it's political window dressing to make people feel better, but it's not going to address the problem. And this is the environmental experts in Environment Canada saying this. It isn't going to be high enough to cause us to change our behavior. Well, sure. I mean, you know, the price of gasoline, I, I know what's done in Ottawa, but it's gone up about five cents, six cents a liter, I guess, in the last couple of days yeah. here. Uh, yeah. and, and I guess I'm supposed to feel warm and fuzzy about that because, well, I'm helping the environment when I pay. I grumble about it, but I'm going to buy it. I still, I still have to fill the gas tank, so I'm going to do right. that. But, but the, here's exactly. the thing. Here's the rub as far as I'm concerned with the cap-and-trade system that, that uh, the Wynn government has put in place here is there's way too much opportunity for a little bit of hanky-panky here. In other words, if, yes. if there's, Ian Lee has a company and Bill Kelly has a company, if yep. I'm a good citizen and I'm doing everything I can to try to reduce my carbon footprint, good on me. I, I get credit for that. You can be a bad guy and go over the limit and simply come to me and say, Bill, I want to buy some of your credits and continue on your merry way, and nobody does anything about it. I mean, it's, <laughs> I'm laughing because you've captured the essence of it. Their answer, and I'm not here to defend, I assure you, the Wayne government, but their answer would be how you prevent that is that each year the permissible amount of GHG uh, emissions is reduced by government fiat, by government decisions each year. So it's not just that it's a static system, it's a contracting system. So if they set the emissions that uh, you know, a billion tons one year, I'm just making up a number, then the following year you reduce that a maximum allowable limit by 10%. So you're constantly squeezing uh, the firms to to uh, essentially downsize their GHG emissions. But as I've said, the problem is, is that you get to a point where uh, you either uh, have to put the price much, much higher if you want to change behavior, or you have a, a low uh, a rate that is it uh, generates some money, uh, but it's not going to produce the end goal of changing behavior. I do want to point something out, though, Bill, and this is from the government of Ontario's own documentation. They estimate that this tax in Ontario is going to generate $8 billion over four years, or roughly $150 a household a year. So it's essentially a tax, and it's going to... The number of people I talk to who have this idea that, oh, no, it's going to fall on corporations and not on us is quite astonishing. All these taxes get passed on down through the, 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 the price system to fall on our shoulders, on our wallet. And I mean our, meaning you and I and consumers in the province. So this is a disguised tax increase on we consumers in Ontario because these corporations will pass it on with the price of goods and services to us as the end users. And precisely and concretely, it's going to cost about another $150 a year per household. 
and that's on top of the other uh, various tax increases we're experiencing, uh, you know, through the electricity program and so forth. Well, yeah, and and those are the the direct costs, and those are the government's numbers. Uh, adding four point three cents per liter to the price of gasoline, they say about eighty bucks a year to your natural gas bill. Uh, right. If you want to believe those numbers, that's fine. I, I think it's a little bit higher than that. But but what about the the ancillary costs to the stuff, Ian? Uh, in other words, if the price of gasoline goes up, it's going to cost me more to go to buy rutabaga in my grocery store now because it's going to cost more to ship that stuff. So those costs are starting to go up. My cost of living is going up, not just the cost of gasoline. Uh, the cost of everything else is going up now, too, because of that. That's my concern is, is that, uh, I mean, my, it, it, my concern is two parts. Um, if you really, really want to get rid of uh, uh, fossil fuels and GHG, it's got to be at such a level, such a magnitude, it's going to literally wreck the economy. And even honest environmentalists will tell you that that's the case. So if we don't wreck the economy, and I'm fully recognized that I don't think anyone, not even Premier Wynne, wants to wreck the economy, then you end up doing what? You do this sort of uh, symbolic uh, tax, and it's real. It's generating real money. I don't mean to suggest it isn't. But symbolic in the sense it's not going to solve the problem. It's not going to eliminate uh, uh, GHG because we are not going to stop using um, fossil fuels. And, and just I just want everyone to think about that for a moment. I mean, think of our houses. We just came through a top winter. Who on earth is going to stop eating their house with natural gas? And they say, well, the point of a carbon tax is to switch. But why would I switch to electricity, which costs anywhere from three to five times as much to heat my home? And I do have friends who are heating their homes with electricity, a similar sized house, and they're paying far, far more than I am in natural gas. So, you know, I'm going to pay the extra tax, whether it's called a carbon tax or a cap and trade, I will pay it. I will grit my teeth, but I'm not going to stop driving my car or heating my home in the wintertime. And that is really the dilemma, I think, that big policymakers are facing and confronting. And in the meantime, they're driving up the cost of living for everybody across the economy because this is falling on all the businesses and restaurants that buy things like food. And, you know, the food industry, the agricultural industry uses a lot of energy to generate the food. So this is going to be passed on to us throughout the economy, but it all falls on you and I as the end consumer. From that economic standpoint, you touched on something a few minutes ago, and I wanted you to expand upon if you could, uh, and that's competitiveness. And and I understand that the arguments we hear from, from those that are espousing these sorts of policies is saying, oh, come on, that's a red herring. I don't think it is. If you've got an administration in the United States right now that's essentially tearing up all this environmental legislation yeah. and saying, you know what, it's uh, it's it's a it's free. Anybody want to do whatever you want, knock yourselves out. Uh, how does yeah. that impact us from a competitive standpoint on on global markets, especially since those guys are supposed to be our major trading partner? Well, they are. I mean, that, that's not that's not a theory. I mean, that's, we export about two thirds of the totality of our exports goes to the United States. Uh, they're our closest and longest uh, and largest uh, trading partner for obvious reasons. I mean, they're literally just next door. They're 50. I mean, the figure that we use all the time is uh, 90% of Canadians live within 150 kilometers of the U.S. border all across Canada. We're all hugging the American-Canadian border, so to speak, geographically speaking. The vast majority of us are right next door. And, of course, the U.S. economy their, their primary language is English, just as the primary language of business in Canada is English. Similar laws, regulations, and so forth. The two economies are harmonized. And, and so they are not going down this road. In fact, they're going down the, they're almost going the reverse direction because he is rolling back. He, Trump, is rolling back 
a lot of the initiatives that were signed into a law through executive order by former President Obama. And he is reversing those decisions. The biggest one of all that's going to impact all of us is the reversal of the so-called CAFE or mileage standards, which were going to go up dramatically by 2025, which is only, what, seven years now. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were supposed to go to 55 miles a gallon. And for the first time in history, they were not going to exempt trucks and SUVs. And there's just no way you can create an F-150 or an F-250 and get, you know, two tons of steel or thereabouts and X, or two tons of anything and expect it's going to hit 55 miles a gallon. It was going to effectively put the shutdown, I argue and others have argued, it was going to shut down the, the truck and SUV industry. Well, he's just rolled that back. And so the, quest, the overarching question you've asked, I asked the same question. How can an economy, the Canadian economy, which is so closely and tightly integrated into the U.S., compete against the U.S. when they will not have these taxes? And, moreover, their corporate income tax is most likely uh, going to be reduced. So the gap between can- our competitive, our tax competitiveness gap, as Professor Mintz has called it at the University of Calgary, is going to get bigger and bigger. And this is going to be worse and worse for us because we're going to be less competitive. And I think ultimately, once all of this shakes down and works its way through, it's going to lead to increased unemployment in Canada. Because if you're not competitive, what do companies do? They lay off workers. Or they move. I mean, if I'm, if I'm working, if, I, if I, I'm the CEO for GM Canada here and I'm making SUVs in Oakville, and and this tax is in place here in Canada, and there's nothing going on down in the states. I'm I'm thinking long and hard about whether or not I should just put the plant down there and and, and manufacture my cars down there. In fact, um, I've been talking about this for a, at least a couple of years. And for those who say, and I've actually had some people say to me, no, 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 there's too many. You know, the company is any company is you know they've got sunk costs. They've got the plant, the factory there. They're just not going to up and move. I want to remind everybody of that company called Caterpillar. London, Ontario, yep. two years ago. And no, they did not go to Mexico, Mr. Diaz at Uniform, because he claims these companies, if they do go anywhere, they all go to Mexico. They went to the United States. And the United States, people don't realize this, but the stats are very clear on this. We are 25% less productive on average per worker hour than the Americans. So there's already disadvantages to being in Canada, and these disadvantages are are getting larger because, you know, the electricity prices are going up, and so what was once an advantage for us has become a disadvantage. The tax gap is increasing. The productivity gap has been there for a long time, and so I think you could see in the next two, three, four years, once things settle down with the Trump administration and he gets some successes through the Congress, and people realize, hey, this really is the new reality with lower corporate income taxes uh, and so forth and, and no carbon taxes. I, I think you could see a significant number of firms saying, you know what, I just can't stay here anymore. You know, the, the wages are the minimum wage has gone through the roof. They're reducing the minimum wages in the states. They're reducing the corporate income tax in the states. They're not allowing a, a carbon tax in the states. And all those things are happening here. And so far, both Wynn and, uh, Premier Wynn and Prime Minister Trudeau have been able to, when I say get away with it, saying, oh, you know, you know, it's not really going to affect us because we haven't seen anything happen yet. And we haven't seen anything happen yet because businesses are just waiting 
to see how it's all going to shake down. But once it, if it does go through that they, they reduced uh, corporate income tax in the states, for example, and then businesses start to realize, no, this is the new permanent reality, then I think that you will see some firms, there could be a stampede for the exits as uh, firms that are, especially those who are directly competing against American companies, uh, decide to relocate uh, to the United States uh, and set up shop uh, there instead of in Canada. We got to finish off, but I'll, I'll finish the same way we began. We all want to be stewards of the economy, and I'm not suggesting for a second that we eliminate all the rules like Trump is suggesting he's going to do down there. Uh, but I guess the question we have to ask of this government and our federal government is: Have you guys really thought this thing through? And I'm not so sure the answer is yes. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you. And yeah, you're right. We don't want to just abandon the environment. But I thought. We were doing a lot of prudent things in the last 20 years, you know, tightening up uh, the standards for uh, the efficiency standards for for, uh, appliances, for air conditioners, for fridges and stoves. The mileage standards were going up, Uh, retrofitting houses, you know, increasing the insulation standards. So there's lots of things we were doing. We were going in the right direction, slowly, surely, incrementally. And I think that that's probably slow, slow, steady and sure is probably much better and less disruptive than this uh, more radical uh, approach to the economy, which could end up, um, um, you know, blowing up in their face. Ian, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks very much. Take care. Ian Lee, of course, from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.